Welcome to Splunk Talk, 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 a Splunk podcast that's all Splunk and no junk. I'm your host, Birch, here with my co-host. My name is Hal. <laughs> this is episode uh, 11 of season two, and today we're going to be focusing on inheriting a Splunk deployment. And we'll soon be joined by a, by a plethora of guests. But before we go any further, let's check in. Hal, how are you? I'm I'm doing okay. Um, my day started a little bit. I'm a little bit frazzled, so I'm gonna try to use this moment to unload a little bit and and maybe get to a place of zen before we record. So um, you're you're a little miss miss frizzled. I don't know why I said that. Keep going. Yeah. No. Keep. I mean, keep your day job. Let's just fly through. <laughs> uh, so. <clears throat> We we had uh, we've got pets and and pets have accidents and we had to had to have some carpet re, uh, replaced and and it's happening right now and there was a little bit of scheduling uh, issues where I didn't know exactly when the carpet was being installed and my wife did within a range and that range is is larger than I was comfortable with and I didn't know how much time I had to prepare the two rooms so it was one of those things where last minute. I had to totally empty my daughter's bedroom and there was a lot of stuff in it. So <laughs> this morning, like I was literally sweating. How old is she? I, I was moving. She's nine. Okay. Cause there's a big difference between if she's like three or 40. Yeah. There's a big difference. So my nine year old daughter, she's got a lot of stuff and a lot of, there's a lot of purging that needs to happen. Let's yeah. say. And I was for the to, toy purge yeah. coming to theaters, not during quarantine. Yeah. But it was, uh, anyway, I, I got it done. It's just, I didn't expect to have to clear the room out in like 18 minutes, you know, running, you know, sweating and yeah. Wow. So, um, they're going to be removing the carpet. Yeah. And placing the carpet and, in two rooms. And so that carpet will then be junk. Yes. Okay. So we've already violated our one principle of this show that it's all splunk and no junk. Okay. But that carpet was nasty. Yes. Oh, I believe that there is merit to the junkiness yeah. of said carpet. Okay. Um, I just, I, I think it's great that we start every episode by saying all Splunk and no junk and then immediately find a way to talk about junk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will be getting into things that are more Splunk and less junk here shortly. In, oh yeah. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about uh, how we, how this topic came to be. Yes, yes please. The impetus. Um, I, would you, would you do sure. the honors? Yeah. So you, were, you lived it firsthand. <laughs> um, on the Splunk user group Slack uh, team, which hopefully many of you are familiar with, there is a, um, there's a channel called, I think it's called Where Do I Ask or something like that. And somebody tagged me and the question that, that someone had raised is with the community is basically there helping people understand who to talk to, where to go, what channel, you know, and, and so on. And it was a question about Splunk Talk. And the question was, hey, I just inherited a Splunk environment. This came from, from Mike Brown, by the way. Uh, uh, you've been outed, Mike. And the, you know, Mike wanted to know, he wanted to hear from and, and know about you know, people inheriting you know, a Splunk environment and you know, the challenges and such. It took, took us a little while to get, get the, uh, the timing together, but, but we're happy to, happy to serve. And, uh, but I got tagged on, on Slack with that, had a little interchange. I was like, you know what, that's a great idea. So we figured we've got a lot of um, people at Splunk who used to be customers who you know, have inherited Splunk deployment. So that's kind of what we, we took as the, the seed of, of putting this episode together. Yeah. And um, the, the thing that's also really interesting is we have an entire manual on our documentation for inheriting a Splunk deployment. And the authors of that manual have been known to do conf talks on the very topic. Mm -hmm. So I, so I think we're mixing our, it up, right? We've got one, two, three, four, five, six potential guests here coming on in a minute. Yeah, we've got like six, six guests that have been through this as customers who now work at Splunk. And then if we get our act together, our next episode could potentially be with the doc writers, um, kind of keeping a, a series going 
part mm-hmm. one, part two, if you will. And um, that also explains why there was a bit of a gap between when this episode comes out in the last episode, we needed a little more time to, uh, to get scheduling for so many brilliant minds. Oh, they're brilliant. They That's like an added bonus. That is an added bonus. Okay. We, we have a, uh, an underlying requirement that our guests must be brilliant. They must have beautiful minds. That's nice. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. Compliments. Compliments. So what, what have you been up to? Um, you know, something that I, uh, that we talked about in the episode with Chris Gales about documentation mm-hmm. is, um, I finally shed my, my books behind me. I see the wall is much different and bare. Yes. So I haven't figured out what I want to decorate it with other than the, uh, last printer that exists in the commercial market. <laughs> but <laughs> that is a, yeah, I, I wish that we could be done with them. I, I have a printer that we use not often, often, but fairly often. And, re, and it's usually related to the kids schooling. So this serves more as a scanner than a printer. Yeah. I definitely bought this for the scanning capabilities. And um, part of like digitizing my world has been, uh, you know, putting, putting all that stuff uh, into the bits and getting rid of it from the home. Yeah. Well, I do a lot of scanning with my phone. Um, mm. I, at one point that work? I, yeah, I haven't had good experiences. It works really well. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of apps that will Google drive, Evernote, um, uh, Microsoft office lens. Those are some three that I would yeah. pick that, you know, they will, um, uh, ha- handle the skewing correction if you're, cause you're not going to be a hundred percent right in front of the document, you know, yeah. and they'll do some black and white, you know, normalization, blah, blah, blah. So for documents, yeah, yeah, it works pretty well. Nice. Just need a little bit of light. So are we going to let all the people in and then start talking to them? Or are we going to talk to them as they start to trickle in? Well, I feel like we should acknowledge them as they start to trickle in. Uh, So we have our, yeah, because I did not set up the waiting room. Um, (laughs) But hey, Mark, thanks for joining. Hey, Birch, how are you doing? Hal. Howdy. Hey. We could turn the waiting room on. It could be just the, the Mark show. <laughs> and we could decide whether or not we could kind of vote. Hey, yeah. Andre's in the in the waiting room. Should we? If, is 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 Mark being uh, uh, good enough that we don't need any more any more uh, guests? Well, it's too late because Andre just showed up. Yeah, yeah you haven't talked to me yet either. <laughs> yeah, we don't know the answer to that question yet. Hello, yeah. Andre. Hey, Andre. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Hi. Hey. So, uh, Mark, where, where are you dialing in from? And then, Andre, where are you dialing in from? And by dial in, no one actually dials anymore. So, No. So I'm uh, in Lothian, Maryland, which is about uh, 30 miles east of Washington, D.C. and southern Maryland. Very cool. You've got three on the east coast of the U.S. then. Andre, how about you? Uh, I'm dialing in from, uh, Hamburg, uh, from Berlin, Germany. So awesome. So four sure on the east coast of the it. U.S. <laughs> oh my god they want to hear about it okay so andre i have to ask you um do you know of the city uh of my namesake there rotenberg um i heard about it i've never been there sorry for Me that neither i need to go there sometime no. you have to it's beautiful yeah. i'm sure well i've i've, <laughs> I've not been to europe enough times so i i but what you know when i get to to uh germany the definite stop is going to be, you know, there's a lot of stuff to see, obviously, but I've got to hit Rotenberg. Yeah. I mean, how can I not go, you know, find a, a city sign, you know, and, and look for Rotenberg? That'd be pretty neat. Of course. <laughs> All right. We have a third oh, and a fourth guest is popping in. So uh, David Paper is joining us and Brian Cusick. Yeah. What's up, Eric? How are you? Hey, how's it going? Um, I have, so funny thing about Brian, that's the real background, right? That's not a virtual background. <laughs> that's the real, it's, it's more messy than everyone else's. So yeah. Yeah. So the cute thing about Brian's background is I have seen that background in many meetings. Um, Brian, do you, would you care to share why so many other people at this company use your living room or office as their virtual background? It's a, it's a great question. I'd have to attribute it to my uh, wife's decorating skills and hours spent watching HGTV. So um, everyone went remote and 
when I built this house, I kind of uh, included an office in it. So I guess people like it. And, and here we are. I've seen all the way up SE leadership use this somehow. So you <laughs> pop on calls and there's my office. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Jeff was saying that uh, he just asked you to like scooch out of the way and then he took a screenshot or something and then it, it spread from there. Yep, pretty much. And now there's even an, an autumn update, if you haven't noticed. Yeah. I'm on the yoga mat, but yeah, it's we're seasonal now, apparently. <laughs> That's funny. I, I, I This is the first time I've had the pleasure, um, but I have seen the same kind of phenomenon happen a couple uh, other places. Um, and it's usually like, how can we prank the, the boss or the big boss? It's usually what it feels like. You know, there's um, Peter Polizzi, his office has been the background of, of uh, many people in some Zoom meetings. He has a lot of stuff in the background of his. He does. Yeah. Let's, uh, um, let's say hi Brian, to David. Where, where, where in, uh, Brian, where, where are you uh, time zone wise? Uh, East Coast. So I'm actually in, believe it or not, it does exist, central New Jersey. Um, so about an hour and a half away from Manhattan. All right. So everyone, including Andre, is on the East Coast of the U.S. <laughs> Andre's calling in from, from Germany. And David Paper. A little bit more hot, Eastern. Yeah, right. Hot from his, uh, this is David's first meeting back from vacation, I think. Uh, I wouldn't quite go on and say vacation, but close enough. <laughs> uh, David, where, what time zone are you in? I'm also in Eastern, uh, Northern Virginia. There we go. Oh, wow. That's funny. So do we have a Josh coming on? Did Josh confirm or are we rolling, rolling? So we've got you, me, uh, Josh declined. We have Andre, okay. we have Mark, we have Brian, we have David, and um, Heather uh, didn't respond. So okay. I think we've got think a full house. Fine. Awesome. So, so, much, um, so much for our attempt to have diversity in this group. <laughs> okay, we failed at that. And, uh, well... At least we tried. Yeah. Right. So thanks, uh, everybody, for coming on. Um, this is a first for the podcast to have quite so many guests. I think we've has – has it just been one uh, interview at a time, Birch, or did we have two? Yeah, the most squares we've had is four when um, before Jeremy, our producer, went on right, eternity. Right. Okay. So um, no problems. We're not scared or nervous in any way. But yes, we just have to, you know, think about handoffs here. So, um, but the the name of the game here today is that we want to talk to everybody about what it's like to inherit a Splunk deployment, and you know what what the what the things that you might want to think about first and some best practices. But before we do that, um, let's let's get uh, just a little bit of background from each one of you. Um, and I'm just going to start with Mark because you showed up first. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Yeah, and and as you do that, um, let us uh, keep let's keep the focus on what what was your inheriting experience from a high level. Yeah, that's the one we want to hear about. Yeah, we don't care about the okay. rest of you. <laughs> so I'm uh, Mark Houston Ludlum from Lothian, Maryland. Uh, been doing Splunk for about five years. Uh, prior to that, I've been doing pretty much system engineering. Uh, a lot of performance analysis over my four decades of experience, everywhere from fighter jets to big data processing systems. So that's been a lot of fun, a lot of interest. I've got to the point about halfway through my career realizing it's just data, and uh, that served me well as long as just data. Um, my first uh, inheritance was my first exposure to Splunks. Uh, one of my teammates at a government contract had done a proof of concept and then the uh, manager gave it to me to like okay make it real um, we'll get in more of that later and then second uh, inheritance was an already running system that was doing about 100 gigabytes a day uh, in VMware so, so that's why I do Splunk wise I enjoy skiing a lot I'm an adaptive ski instructor for people with disabilities so that's how I spend my winters and summer i just have to work i guess so what is your what do you do to for splunk today oh i'm a uh, professional services consultant in pubsec uh awesome. concentrating in the washington dc community okay, so great. to translate our professional services or the folks that come on site or not these days uh but um help we do, do. We do. 
Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, come typically come on site, uh, to, to do the implementation work. Uh, if you, if you hire that consultant, uh, uh, package and then um, PubSec is our public sector business. So if you were to separate commercial business from our, our public sector business, that's you know government, education, etc. So let's go over to Andre from Germany. Hello, Andre. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Um, I will try to keep my German a little low. Um, I hope that's okay. Um, I'm Andre Peach, um, like the fuzzy fruit from Germany. Um, I live in Berlin. Berlin now. I. Um, uh, lived in Hamburg and worked there for a uh, uh, customer of Splunk. So um, as maybe everybody uh, did in, a, in, in their time. And I, I actually um, started using Splunk in 2015 um, and uh, was just thrown out uh, into the Splunk world and uh, fresh out of the egg. Um, I had to present uh, what my company is doing uh, with Splunk on Conf 2015. That was a huge deal. Um, worked for the second largest retail company here in, in Germany. Might have an idea what, who the first could be. Um, and I inherited an environment that was already running for five years prior to when I took it over. And uh, in the end, it was a 700 gigabytes um, full flash with all the bells, bells and whistles that we have. Um, and I even tried to run it in, uh, in AWS with Terraform. So something like what we are doing right now with uh, Splunk Cloud, uh, uh, not so professional, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, what awesome. am I doing um, for Splunk right now? Uh, I'm a sales engineer or solution engineer. I'm not sure what the wording is right now. And uh, uh, for the field sector here in, in Germany, <clears throat> northern Germany especially, and help my yeah my RSMs to um, to make heads and tails of all the things the customers want to have. And um, good thing that I can uh, bring to the table is um, especially this perspective from a customer. What was the thing that I um, that that was uh, that I was concerned about. What were the things I didn't like? What were the things um, sales tried and and so on? And that I didn't like as a customer. I try to bring this to the table and uh, then yeah, um, hope that that they will make better choices uh, or better deals opportunities uh, here. Um, actually, I I met Birch at Conf 2015. Mm. Yeah, and uh, uh, for the first time when I did some uh, boot camps there, that was very, very exciting. I met a lot of people there uh, who had environments like, yeah, we have two or three terabytes, ten thousands of clients, and we are, I am pretty new to it. And I thought, oh my God, I'm I'm really lucky to just have a seven hundred gigabyte environment uh, to deal with. That was very, very interesting for me. Um, Especially also, it was the first time for me out of um, out of Germ not out of Germany, but out of Europe in the U.S. Uh, and back then it was in Vegas, I think, 2015. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think are. that was the last year at the MGM. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the MGM. <laughs> awesome. So let's go to Brian. Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So Brian, out of Jersey, as you guys know. Um, been at Splunk almost two years now. I am now a went from sales engineer to consulting sales engineer with a focus in security, um, which sounds like the same thing I was brought on for, but with a different title. So pretty cool. Um, and uh, I support the entire East for field in, in America. So uh, pretty fun from Maine down to Florida and then somehow over to Texas, which which could be cool once we start flying and we can get some barbecue, right? So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I've been doing that for almost two years now. Previous to that, I was at a partner doing managed services, professional services, kind of all things Splunk from uh, implementation. Uh, started as, you know, an admin taking tickets for data onboarding requests or troubleshooting, something like that. But um, quickly moved into the kind of, Hey, we have a new customer that signed up for our MSSP, our SOC services. Um, take their Splunk environment and make it how we think Splunk environments should look, which a lot of the times involves ripping open cans of worms and you know getting to the bottom of it, whether you wish you had or not. Um, so I have tons of details around that. I'm sure we'll get into that later, but um, some awesome. definitely some winner stories there. And before that, I was actually at a. Uh, uh, a customer myself, an investment firm over in Jersey City, New York, and um, uh, 
just doing security engineering there and owning Splunk ES. So tons of fun. Excellent. Last but not least, Mr. David Paper. Uh, uh, I think least. Ah, <laughs> feeling the love, Birch. Feeling the love. Uh, so um, I, too, am a solutions engineer, uh, mid-Atlantic field team. I've been at Splunk a little bit more than five years now. I, I feel like one of the grizzled old veterans. Um, and my initial Splunk inheritance was a very small instance, uh, 15 gigabytes. That's not a typo. Uh, back in 2009. Um, and so uh, I got a chance to get my feet dirty uh, with Splunk early on and grew that environment uh, fairly quickly over time. Got all the way up to 95 gigabytes, and I was ecstatic. You know, even managed to get distributed Splunk going and uh, index or clustering. Uh, when 5.0 came out, it was a, a real adventure uh, and really gave me the opportunity to, to finish sort of digging into all the nooks and crannies that were going on in Splunk under the covers at the time. Uh, so these days, uh, as a solutions engineer, I am... Um, Looking back on my experience uh, in one of my previous roles at Splunk, which was a technical smoke jumper uh, in escalations, uh, similar to what some of the regional architects in PS do, uh, but from a sales perspective or from a support perspective. So I would uh, spend time at customer sites for a few days at a time and effectively virtually join their team and really try to figure out what's going on in an environment. Um, so I would say I kind of virtually inherited it for a few days, um, dug deep, made some recommendations, helped the customers better understand what they've got in front of them, uh, both good and bad, because, well, let's face it, every customer uh, does a few things wrong and does a few things right. And... Uh, it's always nice to let folks know when they're doing a, when they are doing the right thing, uh, because really, if I was there, uh, it's because a lot of the wrong thing was happening. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. So everything in your perspective—that's something we should we should acknowledge about uh, all of us in our new roles—is at some point we probably inherited deployments in a <clears throat> very innocent manner. But mm -hmm. like David was just saying, if he got engaged with someone over that part of his career, it was because there was a problem. Yeah. Uh, and if I and if it got to me, it was after you know uh, maybe some PS folks had taken uh, some tries at it, support had taken some tries at it, uh, and and we weren't able to crack it. And so uh, I I would take a look at it from a more holistic perspective, falling back on uh, 15 years of operations experience, right? Not just running applications, but also hosts and and networks and storage and understanding how all the bits and pieces. Uh, fit together because it turns out Splunk is one cog in a very large ecosystem that is, you know, a data platform. And inheriting not just Splunk, but all the things that go along with a big data platform uh, is not trivial. And it takes a fair amount of wide berth knowledge if you've got it. And if you don't, that's okay, as long as you know where to go find it. And mm -hmm. other the other people you work with and the other folks at customer sites that are not the Splunk admins may actually have information that the Splunk folks desperately need and just haven't thought to ask for it. So I want to pull on a concept that, that you said, and I think Mark said it as well, which is systems engineering. So this is the part that has nothing to do with Splunk per se, but when you're building something that is large and complex, there's a, a set of practices that you, know, you, you find are more important and some that, that need to go away when you're building a large system and, and Splunk is definitely a case where, you know, like you said, to, to, you're going to have to dive in. There's going to be a lot of pieces and just understanding the complexity and figuring out, okay, sometimes you might need to simplify it things, you know, in order to get to a better outcome. Um, you know, Mark, did you have any, you know, stories along the lines of, of what, you know, systems engineering means and, and how it relates to what Dave was saying? Yeah, part of it is, you know, taking a look at the big picture, what your scope is going to be, it's really easy to respond to like start small and expand it and keep growing it. And then you realize a little too late that maybe that wasn't the best idea. Um, on what I inherited, we were bringing data in and my initial, my first five years at Splunk, I never processed a single log file. We actually used Splunk for something else to process mission data. So we had JSON data come in, basically telling us about our business process, but it wasn't a syslog at all. It was all coming in as JSON, and uh, everybody knows the easy button for Splunk is index extractions JSON and let it flow in, which is great when you're doing, say, uh, 
under 10 gigabytes, which is what I started with. But when you start getting into 100 gigabytes or a terabyte a day of JSON data, the expansion from index extractions is huge. And if you don't look at that at the beginning, what's going to happen once I scale up? Once I my proof of concept is done and it's working, I scale it by an order of magnitude what happens. Um, so that's important. The other challenge we've run into is in our uh, government customers, we usually have a virtual machine team that provides resources for us. So we have VMware, we're running on VMs, we request resources and whatnot. Well, sometimes they're not the most timely in their resource provisioning or complete. And you get issues like just DNS registration to get all your host names in, uh, get your storage volumes right and stuff like that. So you have to really look at what are all the long poles? What are, what can I short circuit um, as far as implementing it? And where am I risk for keeping the system running for high availability? So, um, I wanted to, I just had a thought, Birch, and, and now you've got some questions lined up. Um, I thought it might be neat to just do a quick poll of a couple of uh, things that I've heard you guys say. It sounds like David might have the the earliest experience with Splunk at 2009. What, what about the rest of you? When did you start learning about Splunk and using it? Yeah, 2015 for me. Yeah, 2015. Mm -hmm. 13 for 15, me. 16, yeah. Yeah, I was 2012, Birch. 2012. Okay, cool. 4.3. And what about the largest environment that you touched? Well, you know, it's not the size of the environment. <laughs> it's the data that you sourced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Was it Mark had a 700 gig? What, what about uh, well, Andre, David? So I'm, I'm currently working on an 8 terabyte ES deployment. So Nice, nice. It, it is and interesting, eight, though, like... Uh, like the, the, the data inflation. So back in the day, my first very, my baby Splunk deployment was four gigabytes. And I remember pinching pennies like, well, what data can we take out? How do we make this work? And that type of thing. And now it's like four gigabytes is laughable, obviously. And four terabytes is maybe normal. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, largest Splunk environment that I've touched uh, uh, touched slash worked on recently uh, is about 115 terabytes uh, in an AWS uh, bring your own license. Uh, but it wasn't the, the ingestion that I thought was interesting. It was the fact that they were doing, uh, I think, 6 million searches a day or something like that, maybe north of that wow. in that environment, and it wasn't falling down. Wow. So that was all on one server? <laughs> yes, one very large uh, Z1D server in yeah. AWS. Yeah. Andre, um, Josh, take my, uh, or Brian. Yeah, you, for Andre. me, it's just under just under uh, uh, just under one terabyte uh, was the last environment I worked on in the field. Um, most of the customers that I'm working with um, are thinking about 100, 200, 500 gigabytes maybe um, to get their hands in it. Um, so that's that's why the the environments at least here where I'm. Where I'm working in uh, are pretty small, but it's but they are good opportunities to to grow them larger. And if they are, and most of the time they are depending on us to tell them, um, okay, how do I set it up so that I really can scale it out um, mm. in the next phases without introducing clustering uh, as a next step. Uh, that that was a huge uh, thing for us back then. All right, let's see, let's see what Brian has to say, and we'll go to Birch. Sure. So uh, somewhere around 60, 65 terabytes ES customer, um, not Splunk Cloud or any cloud. Um, that was tons of fun. You had some old Windows machines, some Linux machines, and that was a mess to uh, upgrade, especially with tight, like two hour maintenance window gaps to upgrade, you know, 60 indexers at a time, et cetera, et cetera. Tons of fun. And um, but same story as David, uh, a lot more searches on that data. It was all business data. So it was really cool. It was um, without giving too much away, right? It, it was a rental business that everything you could think about renting or any question you could ask of the business, let alone infrastructure and security and all that was in Splunk. So it was, it was really an awesome experience. So a lot of work, but awesome experience. So, um, I think 
just kind of re- reading my engineering personality, I feel like uh, each of us is probably coming to this recording with a bit of a exuberance to share some kind of trick or like, this is the first thing that I check when I in- inherited a deployment. Um, or this is like, whenever I go to work with a customer um, or work with a new deployment, it, it seems inevitably like this one particular thing is always wrong. And therefore I tend to make it one of the first things that I, I look at. Is there any sort of go-to uh, thing that you have like that? Or is there any sort of... Um, <laughs> Uh, David's racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. All right, David, we'll start with you and Andre. So I'm going to uh, kind of piggyback on Hal's comment about systems engineering. Uh, before any inherited environment or foreign environment is touched, number one question is, do you have backups of all of your config files that you use to manage this? And then before they even answer, have you ever tested restoring them? And if the answer is no, then there is a very frank and earnest discussion about doing that before we start touching and changing anything. So you're saying like uh, configuration of Splunk backup because before you start messing around with stuff, you want to know that you have confidence in your ability to revert back? That is exactly right, especially if you're going to be making changes through the GUI uh, versus using some sort of like built-in version, or sorry, external version control. Uh, A lot of customers are very enthusiastic about wanting to get in and and look at things and tweak things and fix things. And then they realize, oh, that didn't work, but I don't exactly remember what was there before we started. Yeah. Let's test it in production. Um, Everybody has tests. Some people have production. Yeah. So I think that's... I want to go to Andre because he raised his hand also and... Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just just to cap off uh, what what David was saying before we throw it to Andre. So I uh, that that was a, a really good point because I think people, you're right, people jump right into the config and trying to mess with stuff, and and not having that responsibility could be a big a big break. Andre, what do you got? Um, there are two things actually that I'm asking. Uh, first is, uh, do you have some kind of naming conventions uh, actually in place for uh, naming indexes, ma- naming things within your environment, apps, whatever? Um, uh, this also goes over to um, how are their roles and, and um, uh, permission concept and so on. And the other thing that I'm asking is, uh, when was your last health check that you did with this environment? Because um, you might have a good environment, but um, yeah, our, our PS people can give you a pretty good overview what what could be wrong with it or what could be improved with this. Um, okay, so, so this is something that I'm most of the time asking. So we got to hand it off to Mark to explain what a health check is. <laughs> so, so the health check, uh, the monitoring console has a built-in health check, which is pretty good. And it's actually amazing what it picks up. Um, you configure your monitoring console, run the health check, and it looks at key configuration items and operations for Splunk. And it points out the uh, inevitable, you didn't set your transparent huge pages correctly, you didn't set your U-limits correctly, uh, lots of stuff like that in the health check. And it's really, the way I approach performance overall is the whack-a-mole theory is you look for the really outliers first and health check is a good place to start like don't try and tweak and tune your system unless you set the base correctly so health check start helps you with that a lot so, so there's I, health, I wanted, health check the feature but there's also yeah. health check the service offering which i wanted to make sure that we were ah. for the customers that and I, maybe it's different in public sector but there's a one week it's one or two week service offering that's hey come in and document what what the environment is like and help to define what those outliers are but i i but i blah, 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 blah. but before mark um <laughs> expands on that uh you you bring up a really good point which is like i mean one of the best things i can come out of this podcast is someone learning that they are empowered to make a positive change right now um specifically for splunk but sure positive change in your life that works too uh but knowing that he's a modern yeah, the monitoring console has a health check. You could run it now. Doesn't mean you're changing things. It just means you're kind of auditing and you can get a sense of what, what you might need to work on before you then queue up what Mark's about to talk about. Mark? Yeah, I've only 
done one health check. Um, we had one customer, they had a running system, so he started with the health check. We, I spent four weeks there doing some other work for them. But basically, you're looking at, okay, how did we deploy the system? What are your requirements? Um, is, what is the base configuration on how it operates? And are there anything in the configuration that is really a limiting factor on how well the system works? And it's kind of a straightforward process in professional services. We have a basically a guide that we follow to do all those steps and check off the little squares. But it really is a useful exercise to know what you have and get a really good idea of what it is you have to address going forward to make your system better. So, you know, and the goal is everybody has a system that works well and you know, they're getting their data and doing their searches and not getting frustrated about it. So, and there are a lot of little things we can do to make, make it less frustrating. So Brian, um, you have any thoughts on the, uh, the health check, the, you know, kind of the, the getting started, what would you do first? You know, I just inherited this. Yeah. Um, a couple things. I mean, I haven't raised my hand cause I can't decide between three, but I promise I'll keep it that to three sentences. Um, one, a big one that I always see is, you know, no one pays attention to timestamps or line breaking, uh, which is like my favorite thing to do, apparently. Um, written a couple of blogs about how to do it. It's, it's fun. Um, the second one, you limits always. I'm sure David's like cringing inside. And um, the third one is for enterprise security customers, or really just anyone using a common information model. Um, there, there are a bunch of macros to identify which indexes you're which data live in, like your authentication data, your network traffic data, et cetera. Um, when that's not enabled, you know, we hog a lot of resources we don't need to. Uh, so that is like, I have a, we have a dashboard built on my team that just plug it in an environment. Yes, there's the monitoring console stuff, but I, I like to customize things. So that's just how I do things. But um, I mean, either way, a lot of the time what I find is I'd be a fool if I didn't say this, um, just from the experience of having to manage Splunk myself and having to, uh, you know, be responsible for the performance is Splunk Cloud has been like the answer to all my health checks, right? I mean, it's it's a lot easier. I won't harp on anything like that, but I've had to report to CISOs and CTOs and, you know, you go in their office on a Friday to show all your cool dashboards. And, you know, if things are slow because you're running on half the IOPS in your VMware environment or something like that, you know, I've, I've just had a lot more success in the cloud. So that's, that's the end of my rant. Thanks. So I want to go back to um, something Andre said. Andre, you pointed out roles. You said naming convention and roles. And um, I was, uh, I, I want to hear more about, well, why, what's the risk of having poorly defined roles? And um, I'll buy you another second by sharing uh, an experience when I inherited an environment, uh, one of the multiple environments I inherited as a customer. One of the um, more comical things is all the settings were really screwy. Like someone was in there that didn't really know what they were doing. And then finally it dawned on me, every single user in LDAP in the system was mapped to the admin role. So that was why all the settings uh, wow. were so screwy. We had like the CTO logging in and being like, uh, yeah, I want to increase my search concurrency or whatever, you know? So cleaning up that, it, it, it became a really interesting thing because the harder part, well, it wasn't that hard, but the harder part of that was actually not making the setting change. Like that is a pretty straightforward thing. Okay, I'm going to make that setting change, clean that up, and then start to clean up the mess that uh, resulted. But it was the political part. I needed to make sure that I communicated out to everyone. Here's what's going to be happening. You're going to be losing this access, um, dealing with anyone who is going to push back on it, making sure that my management was prepared for this dramatic change that I would be making. Um, and so I think it... I go to share that both to buy you time, but also to point out that um, some of the things about inheriting an environment could be human factor, not so much the technology. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the thing that I that I saw in, in a lot of cases also with the new customers now is um, 
we have to explain them the the possibilities of permission uh, setting in, in Splunk. From from user perspective, uh, they come on the Splunk um, website on a search set, and then they have a lot of uh, possibilities. So, um, from my per, uh, point of view, there are um, I would say three three main dimensions um, setting permissions. One is um, have access to certain indices. The, the buckets where the data is in. Um, so this has to be organized somehow, um, maybe uh, for apps that you have, maybe for environments that you have, whatever. So there, there the naming conventions comes in and then also you set up rules with that. Then the, the other dimension is um, having the apps with the dashboards uh, working on this data from, from, the, from the indexes. Um, so that's the second dimension that we have. And the third dimension is the capabilities. What, what can I do? Am I an admin? I'm a standard user, power user? So what, what capabilities do I have in this environment? And to organize all three of them is really, really hard because if you see this cube that spans up and uh, then, then you see that there, there are a lot of um, a lot of crosses that you can uh, that you can uh, that you can match with with your uh, with your users, and if you then go into the um, LDAP and you, if you connect it to the LDAP and say to the LDAP, yeah, we have um, I don't know uh, 100 indexes, um, about 50 apps for each and every group, and then we have um, I don't know three three uh, different based of base uh, three three different roles, then you have um, thousands. Of uh, of uh, groups that you have in your LDAP, and the LDAP admin says you are you are crazy, You're not with my system. So the thing that I that I um, use often is to explain. Okay, um, imagine the dashboards without access to data are empty, and the data without that dashboards are pretty lame. So why not combine at least two of these dimensions um, and have those somehow uh, be um, yeah, the permission put together. So one app and the and the the indexes that uh, the data is from, and the other dimension would be um, divided into three parts: the, the the capabilities and admin, power user, standard user. So with that, you only have two dimensions that you really have to care about and that you have to put into your LDAP. So that's really really easy then to comprehend all of these possibilities. So I um, can't stop myself, but to also call out that if you go to lantern.splunk.com, you can find an article called Managing Data Based on Role. And um, in that, we talk about, uh, we build on, on what you just said and actually call out five aspects of roles. Yeah, so data access, like you said, indexes, search restrictions, product feature capabilities, knowledge object permissions, and then what their default app is. And just like you said, once you start to realize that even though within Splunk, it's called role, role is actually like five different functional things in one. It allows you to take a step back and have a more mature and sophisticated approach on, on your data management. So I, I love that point. Yeah. Hal, you had a... Birch, I think, cool. uh, I think we've just defined what a next episode is going to be. Splunk Lantern. Ah, going into okay. depth there. Um, sure. Yeah, so I wanted to know um, what are some of the worst messes that you have come across, and, and how did you start to get a handle on it? Um, let, let's go to Brian first, but I know that David's going to have a bunch as well. Um, <laughs> Brian, you want to talk about uh, removing TAs <laughs> in production? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for not making us all follow up, David, on this one because I'm sure he's got some <laughs> some great. <stories. laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think the I was trying to decide what was the most horrible thing I've ever seen, and uh, apparently one time someone removed the Palo Alto TA from like 15, 20 indexers, uh, the the whole fleet, right, the whole cluster, um, and didn't do anything about it for like two, three weeks or however long. It wasn't even noticed uh, somehow. So. For anyone that doesn't know what that's going to do, especially for a enterprise security customer, is remove any kind of source types, right? Everything's gonna show as pan log instead of traffic, thread, et cetera, et cetera. All those field extractions, line breaks, timestamps, tags, event types, you name it, anything you wanna do besides look at a raw block of text, you need that there. Um, so a couple of weeks later, we said, all right, well, if we reapply this TA, it's not going to retroactively fix anything because these are index time extractions. Mm -hmm. So the, the fix ended up being 
script Real a, quick, I'm sorry. Let's yeah, define sure. index time versus search time extraction for the audience. Sure. Yeah. Should we yeah, do the absolutely. index time? Should we define the index time um, ones before the podcast starts and then the search ones right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's too late because we already started the podcast. Yeah. We'll do it on the fly. Some Python will fix that. Uh, <laughs> So uh, index time extractions, meaning when data comes into Splunk and is written to disk, uh, some things are extracted or handled, meaning line breaking, time stamping, uh, associating the host source source type index field. I might miss one or call an extra one. Apologies. Uh, but uh, uh, that's index time extraction. So that's the only thing you ever want to set up pretty much at the beginning of indexing data to Splunk, right? Everything else is schema on the fly, schema at read, um, meaning, you know, you want to extract the source IP, create a field alias, do something like that. All that can be done either on the fly or in configuration file at the time the data is read from disk. So it doesn't have to be pre-configured. Is that, is that a accurate yep, statement for the dream team here? Okay, cool. Uh, don't forget truncation. You don't want to be slicing your events off at the knees. He, I mean, he actually... Always a zero. Yeah. That one. He, he had he had truncation in there. We just ran out of time. Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> truncated my log too early. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, um, I mean, the the removing of the the TA is going to break all of these things. There's there's no knowledge objects added at, at index time. You know, you might have truncated events or the or the inverse, right? If the line breaks are, mm -hmm. are off or event breaks are off. Did so, you say it happened on both the search heads and the indexers? Just the indexers, but it didn't matter, right? I mean, right, because none of the search time right. stuff was working once it wasn't properly indexed, so, right? Because go ahead, Al. I was just gonna say, let's focus on like, okay, so you found it. What, how did you get a handle on it? What was next? Yeah, the next thing was first of all, as soon as you can apply the correct version uh, TA to the indexers, so any future data. Like we can have a, a stop gap, right? So any future data is correctly sourced. Stop the bleeding. Um, stop the bleeding, right? Band-aid on the bullet hole, on the bullet wound, right? So um, after that, the solution, was, well, the, the fix was, how do we retroact retroactively fix this data? Because we don't know if we're vulnerable to any type of security incident for the last multiple days. We'll leave it at that. Um, so the solution was we had to run a search to extract that, extract that data, the raw log, then somehow re-inject it into Splunk. And this is like terabytes and terabytes of data for, for what it's worth. Um, and with the TA on it, right? So we, we had to spin up a heavy forwarder, kind of out of band, heavy forwarder search head of that index cluster, and then just kind of uh, programmatically pull it write it to disk and have a universal forwarder kind of monitor on that same box and pump it back into Splunk, right? There's a million different ways you can do that. But the point is, um, you know, we had to take terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data via Python out and pump it back in to fix that. So index time extractions are somewhat. Wow. Busy. Okay. Yeah. Let's have uh, the rest of you uh, reflect on that. Anything interesting there? And then we'll uh, pick up a new story. Uh, Any thoughts? All right, Mark. Yeah, so I had one. It's actually not the Splunk part, but I inherited a system that was deployed with Ansible, and they had a whole set of playbooks to deploy everything, manage to, not a cluster, but a distributed deployment. It was eight standalone indexers. And playbook was great and whatnot. The only problem with the playbooks is that there was no error checking in them. And... <laughs> Secondarily, our development system was not configured the same as the production system. So the test run of an update to some indexes on the dev system worked fine, applied it to the production system, and we lost all access to all data because there was an error. It wasn't trapped in Ansible. It managed to get through and remove all the definitions of every index, but not add the one new one we needed. So fortunately, it was recoverable. But if you're making uh, Ansible playbooks, make sure you put error checking in there and don't commit it until it's actually correct. So, Andre, you, you mentioned using Terraform uh, in a prior life. You know, you want to talk a little bit about, about you know, automating Splunk configuration and, and maybe the dangers of? Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe <laughs> I should. Uh, because um, 
yeah, it was, it was the time when we tried to put um, a hybrid environment because um, the idea was to to um, store the data where where it's generated. So I have an on-prem Splunk environment and an, uh, an AWS Splunk environment. So we needed something in AWS um, that is Splunk to not um, have all the data over the over the wire. <clears throat> and uh, with that, we we um, I needed because I was new to Terraform, and you know Splunk can be really uh, complicated uh, to set up. Um, I really had to, to put, um, I would say, six months into understanding how Terraform works, how AWS works at the same time, how to uh, how to ansible all of this within Terraform, and then drill it into AWS so it doesn't uh, cost us too much too much money, uh, and then to create all the connections to this uh, AWS instance from all the other AWS accounts. So. <clears throat> It is a hard. Uh, it was a um, pretty hard lesson to learn, but in the end, I, I can say, hey, I know how to terraform Splunk and how to put all of the stuff in there and how to actually design this from scratch and do whatever I wanted, whatever I wasn't able to do within our on-prem network because there were so many um, restrictions and stuff in there um, that, I, that I wasn't able to come over because there were people involved like network people and so on they had their own ideas so um, it's really good you can you can do pretty much whatever you want but uh, you really have to be careful what you do in there um, if you bring your own license to an uh, to a cloud environment and put it in there because one number uh, set the wrong way and you spin up a lot of instances they cost a lot of money um, and this money is then you have to pay for it. Uh, if you have made the, the error or not, um, no one cares. You have to pay for it at that point. All right, so All right David, I, I feel like we've held you in the cage long enough. Let's break class in case of emergency. <laughs> That's okay. So uh, uh, I, I break these down. I'm going to take a, a cue from Brian in uh, three categories, uh, hardware, software, and wetware. So software I'll start with. Uh, one of the most interesting environments I found uh, had two search head clusters with a total of 4,000 available search slots. Um, one of those clusters had 2,800 searches scheduled at a, on a single minute, 12.04 p.m. every day. That was the worst minute of the day, but by far not the only one north of 2,500 searches scheduled. Um, they had just how, a How many few, slots did they have, just for reference? 4,000 search slots. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, they were using 10 uh, searches per CPU plus base searches, and it was really uh, a, a monster. Um, the way we got it under control, uh, started with allow SKU, set it to five minutes globally. We then turned on the scheduler window, set it to auto. Right, so what, was, when, what did you set to five minutes globally? Allow, allow SKU. underscore oh, allow SKU. SKU. Yep, for uh, for um, scheduled searches. We also went into the data model accelerations and changed the acceleration allow SKU, which also exists, but most folks don't uh, don't use it or know about it. So explain, so, explain allow SKUs. Yeah, ah. and then I want to know, is there a reason to not use it? Uh, so allows so um, the Splunk scheduler when you say you know schedule once a minute or once every five minutes will generally try to kick off searches at the very beginning of each minute so the zeroth or first second of every minute that means you get a whole bunch of congestion at the very top of each minute and you end up with these sawtooth patterns of your in indexer uh, utilization allow skew which can be set set as a percentage of time like you know, 50% skew uh, or a number of minutes says go ahead and use all the seconds in an hour, uh, all the seconds in a minute uh, for your scheduling. So for example, if I set allow skew to five minutes, that tells Splunk any search that is scheduled for five minutes or uh, less often, so scheduled for five minutes or more, you have a 300 second window to run that search whenever the system is as less, uh, least busy as possible. So it gives the scheduler a lot more flexibility to uh, move searches around to more evenly balance out the system. If your search runs more frequently than five minutes, then allow SKU uh, is um, limited to the frequency of search. So if you have a, a five minute SKU and you run a search every two minutes, well, we'll only SKU it a maximum of two minutes. So what that means is your search will run every five minutes, maybe at uh, 37 seconds past the minute, but it'll be the same 37 seconds every five minutes. So you don't end up losing any data and you don't miss any of your data windows. 
Uh, is it still and, considered a, if you're doing something like that, even though it tries to keep it at that consistent time, is it still best practice to use the snap twos so that you know you're consistently starting and ending at the top of the minute or whatever, regardless at, at, of when the skew runs? Uh, absolutely. So snap twos are awesome. And if you're going to be using snap twos for things like a 15 minute search or a five, you know, search runs, um, you know, earliest five minutes and latest now, don't run it as minus five minutes at minute, uh, run it as minus six minutes at minute, uh, for earliest and then latest as minus one minute at minute, give your events, uh, your straggler events, uh, a few extra seconds to get ingested into Splunk. So when you run that search, you don't miss them because you may not uh, catch them on the second, uh, the second run. Your point being that you could have lag. Some data might be showing up now that didn't just happen now. It could have happened a full minute ago, and it's just exactly. coming to the indexers yep. now. And you want to be able to try and catch that in your searches. Exactly. Yeah. Um, brief, brief interjection. Um, ITSI takes that into account, and there's a step where you can basically have it evaluate your lag and then suggest a lag, and you, you put that into the KPI searches that it generates, and it will take care of that fix that you just said, basically. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, that's, that's pretty neat, especially if it, uh, if it pays attention to whenever that lag changes, especially if it gets longer versus that's getting shorter. Question. I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that, so that was the, the, the software, uh, hardware wise. Um, the worst thing I ran into is a indexing cluster that has a mix of spinning rust and SSD It was all supposed to be SSD and somebody goofed on the ordering process. And so when you have four, 5,400 RPM drives in a RAID 6 configuration on your indexers, you get a whopping 150 IOPS <laughs> out of an indexer. Uh, it doesn't take very long to make that indexer crawl. Uh, it turns out buying more of them with that same broken configuration really doesn't make Splunk go any faster. Um, the fix for that was surprisingly simple. We basically removed the the poorly configured indexers out of ingestion rotation and just let the SSD-based ones pick up the slack uh, and removing five-sevenths, so five of seven indexers out of the cluster, uh, brought the system back to almost instant uh, response time. And wow. so the two indexers that were left, they were busy, but they could handle it. And the customer was ecstatic uh, that we got this fixed so quickly. So, so uh, it's almost counterintuitive. What I'm hearing is you would think, oh, well, I don't want to take five-sevenths of my indexers out of commission. My performance is going to suck. But because they had such poorly defined disks uh, that they were both indexing and returning search results from, it actually became more performant by not having them. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Removing, wow. the, removing multiple bottlenecks, uh, so, multiple parallel bottlenecks in the, uh, in the process. Absolutely. So who wants to talk about search completion and, and how that would affect the end user in such an environment? I can, or David. Uh, so, search completion. I mean, your you search mean, is not going to finish until all yep. the indexers have said mm. that they're done with the job. So the slowest one is going to kind of hold you back. Uh, that's true. Uh, you also run into scenarios where the indexer is so busy, the search basically times out. Not, mm. So, uh, yeah, so that, it's really painful. And there were uh, many dashboards in the dozens of panels range that, of course, just, just trashed these indexers. Uh, and the customer couldn't figure out that even at like three in the morning on Sunday when nobody was using the system, everything was still slow. So uh, that was pretty painful. So the real lesson there is uh, when you're when you're looking at hardware, uh, it's another. Uh, this is sort of another reason that Splunk Cloud solves uh, hardware and infrastructure problems. When you're buying hardware and you put it online, make really sure you get what you think you uh, paid for, and what you ordered. Because if somebody accidentally flips a couple letters and you don't catch it, uh, you can end up with a very unperformant system. Uh, and then the last one is wetware, and so this is a, a two-parter. Uh, the first one. Um, is basically one that I'm sure most of us have seen. Uh, the Splunk admin or admin team is effectively overwhelmed. Uh, by I have the never community. heard of wetware. Just throwing that yeah. out there. You've never heard of wetware, hardware, oh. software, and wetware. The three, the three legs. Is of the wetware the people? Yeah. The wetware is the people. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so admin teams with large user communities, and, and Birch may know something about large user communities. Uh, you can get overwhelmed. Uh, if you don't delegate out some of the responsibility to your power users and empower individuals on various teams as knowledge um, knowledge owners uh, and data domain experts, uh, so you can kind of push out the help that your customers, your internal users are going to ask for uh, to other folks. 
Uh, and then the, 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 the one that was very cringy uh, was um, ran into an admin who was using search egg clustering. They had five nodes, uh, but they didn't trust the deployer. So they'd manually log into every search head cluster node and manually edit files when they wanted to change something. Uh, but sometimes they get distracted and they wouldn't remember to edit all five files. Uh, sometimes they get four or three. Sometimes it was one. Um, and then they'd restart nodes, but not all of them sometimes, uh, and was really frustrated that they couldn't seem to understand why their, their uh, environment was really inconsistent. Um, and about 15 minutes into asking them to make a change so I can watch it, it was pretty obvious what was going on. And then it became, this isn't a software problem, this is an education problem. And it's a, uh, this is a, this is an easy problem to fix, but what one of the things Sounds like we lost a, David's audio. Huh? Maybe Did your you? audio is no, messed up. No, no, he's good. Just you. Unless it's me. Just you? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the real recommendation was uh, give you need to create a small test environment so you can uh, experiment and learn and play so you're not um, – you're not training yourself in production uh, where you, when you make mistakes, it's really hard to figure it out and it's even harder to recover from. So, um, you know, a lot, lot of the, some of the stuff is complicated. Some of it's simple. Uh, but the reality is, 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 uh, cust you know, I, I can't remember who coined it, but Custy's going to Custy. And uh, there's never a dull moment when you've got Splunk customers that are doing interesting things. Hmm. I had a I had a uh, one one time a CISO came to me and opened up a security ticket and uh, said, "Hey, Splunk is promoting all our passwords in, in clear time to everyone or in, in, in clear text to everyone." I made a look into it and uh, saw that a developer had an environment dump in front of what he whatever he was doing, and uh, in the environment dumps usually there are passwords in there to connect to databases. And uh, the solution for that was also a very wet, wet one. We slapped the, the developer on the hands and said, "You never have to ever again uh, dump an environment into a log file." So that was the solution. Um, okay, can you hear yeah, me? Go ahead, Birch. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. All right, cool. Okay. So I had some weird audio issues there for a second. Um, we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, I want to make sure that we um, had a chance for people to just sound like you. If, if you have to tell somebody, you know, who's inheriting system, one tip, you know, what, what was that going to be? Mark, Mark, let's kind of start with you and say, you know, like, like your, your walk away advice. Yeah. So walk away. If you inherit, most of the people who inherit it uh, don't have a lot of training. So get your own base training first so you know what it is that you're looking at. And then secondly, take a minute and make an assessment of what your deployment is, what it has, and figure out why it's doing what it's doing before you change it. Awesome. Brian, same question. Yeah, I think the, the big thing, and maybe it's not a piece of Splunk advice as it is rather just a practicing being a technician type of thing. Um, you know, I've messed up environments worse than kind of half of the stories I've already told when I first started becoming a spunker, right? So, um, like, really bad. I don't even want to share. Uh, but at the, same, at the same time, you know, uh, inheriting environments, you know, people do things different ways. Uh, just because something looks different does not mean it's necessarily wrong. If you want to prove someone wrong, pull up Btool. Um, but yeah, Btool is great for, uh, uh, I guess, uh, obtaining new environments. But uh, the big thing is, you know, um, for anyone that's, uh, you know, not a genius spunker, so to speak, uh, there's always more training. Education is super valuable. I mean, it, it definitely got us sort just doing it uh, to where we are today, right? So, I mean, that's just an important thing to remember. All right, Andre, last words. Uh, oh, last words. Okay. Um, yeah, from my point of view, uh, if you inherit something, uh, don't assume anything. Get a PS Health check. Um, they will give you everything you need to know about your environment and what's wrong with it, what you have to concentrate on first when you get it. Um, and yeah, that would be my advice. Awesome. David? So I'm going to piggyback on uh, uh, on Andre a bit. Uh, while you are waiting for that PS health check to uh, happen, there is a Splunk doc page called Inheriting Environments, and it is a great, fantastically um, 
thorough checklist of things to look at in a brand new environment that you haven't seen before. Uh, you can find it with the word Splunk and Inherited in Google. Uh, I'd say use Bing, but no. Well, actually, our next episode is going to be talking to, to the authors of that document and working through some of those. Excellent. Yes, that is a fantastic document. Uh, I had a very, very small uh, fingertip in helping to put that together years ago. But uh, I recommended that document to many people because it solves the problem of what do I look for, right? You told me to go look for stuff. Well, that's a long list and I don't want to have to remember it. So uh, that's it. I, companion um, to David. No, oh. oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. yeah, companion to David is and Spunk Wiki, things I wish I knew then which is a really good mm. summary. Yeah. And um, so I want to stitch together a couple of things I heard. Um, definitely the docs. Um, definitely when you uh, first step into this role, if there's some education you need to do, don't keep putting it off. Just register for it right away because the class may not be scheduled again for another month or two. So you don't want to snooze and lose. You want to get get on that right away. Um, and then like Andre and, and I think Brian said, um, I know there are certainly people that inherited my environments after I left, especially my lab where I was doing some really hippie stuff. And um, I later had heard like, we don't know what the heck we were doing here. There were sim links everywhere and stuff. And it was like, run B-Tool. If, if all else fails, run B-Tool and you'll, you'll fully understand what's going on. Um, but it brings up a good point of like document, 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 right? And so I left people in the lurch by Birch because I didn't document things. Um, cool. Bad well, Birch, no biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, this, this was an incredible session. Uh, thank you all for uh, meeting at your – well, Andre's the only one who had a slightly inconvenient time. The rest of us are all in the same time zone. It's so. perfect for me. That was not. Oh, I would ever always do it for you. Oh, thank you. Um, but uh, this was this was really great. I'm I'm excited to hear what kind of uh, fan feedback we we get on this session, and I look forward to uh, the follow up where hopefully we can meet with the doc writers of that that manual. So great great way of uh, queuing queuing that up. Um, Hal, anything anything else? Nope. I mean, thank you, uh, all of you for your time. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and, uh, I'm sure that everybody will get something out of it. Awesome. Great. Well, happy splunking. Bye everyone. <laughs>